Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Philip Pullman is the acclaimed author of a series of three novels titled collectively His Dark Materials, which is now being adapted for television by HBO, The Golden Compass, the Subtle Knife, and the Amber Spyglass. There are two volumes of a prequel series, The Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage was published in October 2017, and The Secret Commonwealth in October 2019. I had a chance to speak with Philip Pullman about his dark materials when he was on tour for the third volume, The Amber Spyglass, in October 2000. I opened the interview by asking him why his books were published as young adult novels when clearly they're written for adults. If this book had been published as an adult book, it would have attracted fewer adult readers than it has by being published as a children's book. The reason for that is simple. If it had been published as an adult book, it would have been called fantasy. And only the fantasy fans, only the fantasy readers would have found it because it would have gone on the fantasy shelves and stayed there. The most common comment I get from adult readers now, and it's, uh, I could, you know, if I had a dollar for every time this has been said, I would be rich, is this. They, they begin by saying, I don't usually read fantasy, but I read this and I enjoyed it because blah, blah, blah. That really is exactly the response I was hoping for. The labeling is done by publishers and by booksellers and by librarians and so on and by journalists for, in, in the main, good reasons. They're trying to bring the book to the attention of the kind of people who they think would be most likely to enjoy it. But really, that is not my motive. I don't set out to entertain this group or that group, and I certainly don't want to exclude that group or this group. I just want to tell a story. These three novels, the third novel being quite long, form a, a kind of epic that somewhere, I believe you said, was related very closely to Paradise Lost, perhaps even a sequel, one could call it. Yes, one has to be careful when making this sort of comment, because then you get accused of uh, uh, trying to rival John Milton or something like that. N nothing of the sort. Uh, Paradise Lost was my starting point. It's a poem I've known and loved since I was a, a teenager when I first read it. It made a huge impression on me then, and it continues to amaze and delight and uh, astound me now when I read it. It's related to Paradise Lost, I think, in two ways. Firstly, because the theme is the same. It's the story of the temptation and the fall. Milton uh, was writing at a time, of course, when he had to uh, make Satan the, the bad guy and represent his attempt to tempt mankind. He, he had to represent that as, as a thing of evil, as an act of, of wickedness. Unfortunately for him, but fortunately for the rest of us, Milton's all his imaginative energy was on the side of Satan and so on. And that's why the passages where the, the devils are conspiring to send an emissary to this newly created world and uh, tempt the, the new man and the new woman into, uh, into sin, th those are the most exciting passages. Now, I wanted to tell this same story from a slightly different perspective. The other thing that 
excited me then and now about the about the poem about Paradise Lost is the extraordinary beauty of the language, the majestic grandeur of the descriptions. And those were the things that caught my imagination and set set my mind on fire. And uh, so that the, the, in that way, the thing is related to Paradise Lost. But in no sense is it as I wouldn't presume to say it was anything like a sequel. <laughs> okay, uh, the title of this trilogy is uh, His Dark Materials, and I've read the trilogy, and I don't get it. What does His Dark Materials mean? Who who's his? Well, that's explained in the epigraph to the first book in which that phrase occurs. It's a passage from Paradise Lost. And it refers to the, if I can remember the line exactly, it's unless the almighty maker them ordain his dark materials to create new worlds. The implication of those lines is that uh, the the world, everything we know and see, is made up of a, um, a mixture of different things. It's not all good. It's not all bad. It's not all light. It's not all dark. It's and so on. It's and the presence of these dark materials, as I, as I, which is the, the phrase I quote, uh, is echoed throughout the book in a number of ways, principally in the inclusion of references to that very useful substance, dark matter. Now, I say useful because for a storyteller, dark matter is a wonderful discovery. Dark matter, of course, is the stuff that cosmologists say makes up 90% or more of the physical universe. This is what you call dust. This is what I call dust. Now, dark matter is invisible. We, we don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is. And I was hoping that uh, nobody would come up with a discovery of uh, and solve the mystery of dark matter before the third book was published, but fortunately they haven't. Yet the notion is that the, the universe is pervaded by this invisible stuff, which must be there, otherwise it wouldn't work gravitationally. But nevertheless, we still don't know what it is. And of course, that's a, a, a wonderful starting point for a storyteller. The first novel, The Golden Compass, tells a story of a girl named Lyra and her adventures in her world. As we move into The Subtle Knife, that's when the show broadens into other worlds, other characters, and um, into this battle between uh, these two sides. When you were beginning The Golden Compass, how aware were you that the book would grow into such an epic? Well, I knew exactly how big it was going to be and roughly how long it would take me. Um, and I was right on both counts. I knew it would take about uh, seven years, and I knew it would be about 1,200 pages long. It's a, it's a few pages longer than that, but I was pretty close. And I knew that it had to begin in a, in a, in a small way, in a quiet little scene with one child doing something that she shouldn't do, and broaden out and encompass more and more characters and larger and larger themes. But th th this was the way to begin it, I was sure, with, with the character who would engage the interest of the audience and, um, and whom they would follow through the book and who herself would grow and develop and change uh, and suffer and um, come to learn, which is really what the whole thing is about. And I knew where it would end. And uh, that's what happened. In a way, it reminded me of the same, uh, the same technique used by Tolkien in Lord of the Rings. Tolkien uh, had a huge influence, of course, on uh, every writer of fantasy who came after him. Um, I think I'm doing something quite different, actually. Uh, I am more interested in the psychological development of the characters. I'm more interested in the business of the whole business of growing up. It's the difference between childhood and adulthood. It's the, it's the loss of innocence, the gaining of experience, if you like. I don't think Tolkien was particularly uh, concerned with that kind of um, what you might call psychological exploration. Tolkien, of course, was a Catholic, and for him, the big questions of life were settled. 
you don't encounter the big questions of life in The Lord of the Rings. You encounter orcs, you encounter elves, you encounter things that don't really exist. But I'm after a different sort of um, a different sort of game than that. Apart from the fact that both stories are in three volumes, and Tolkien lived in Oxford and I live in Oxford, and uh, well, that's about it, really. <laughs> no other similarity that I can see. Another author that uh, kind of reminds me of, though, of course, one could say you're coming at it from a completely different angle, would be C.S. Lewis. Well, now, th that's an interesting contrast, because uh, they're both known for these works of fantasy, uh, principally, although they did a lot of other work besides. In Lewis's case, the seven uh, books that tell about Narnia are very much children's books. He was writing for children, and he wrote, in a sense, he wrote down to children, and actually, when you read them as an adult, they are pretty irritating books. Um, he also uh, is different from Tolkien in the fact that whereas Tolkien wasn't dealing with these big religious issues, I don't think anyway, Lewis definitely was. This I put this down to the, their background, you know. Tolkien as a, was a Catholic. Lewis, on the other hand, was a, a Protestant, a, an Ulster, a Northern Irish Protestant, used to doing um, what people in the Protestant tradition have always done, wrestling with these big questions and, and uh, you know, encountering uh, theological difficulties for himself. And this is what he does in uh, the Narnia books. Now, I profoundly, indeed passionately, disagree with the conclusions he comes to. But nevertheless, I do think that's what he was doing. The, the three books have a certain cosmology, which includes multiple worlds, includes angels. It includes God, uh, known as the authority who you posit as an angel who's very old, his regent, and those individuals who are opposed to these, these creations. Uh, it doesn't have Jesus Christ. The place that uh, religious leaders like Jesus and like the Buddha and like the great saints have in this cosmology is that of people who were inspired by wisdom. Now, wisdom is an important quality or character, um, not quite a character, but certainly a quality, uh, which figures in, in the cosmology. In I don't know how, <laughs> how much detail we want to go into, um, but uh, the... The old notion, which, come, which comes from a very long time ago, was that Sophia, the, the Greek name for wisdom, was, was personified as a quality who um, was in fact uh, rejected by the authority in the first place, by God. And um, in some versions of the story, it's the Sophia, the wisdom character, who inspires the, the fall, who, who leads the innocent Eve and Adam towards uh, the knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, and later on, um, eventually, towards this quality which we, which we characterize by the word wisdom. Now, wisdom and innocence are, if you like, two ends of a spectrum. Um, we begin by being innocent. We inevitably lose our innocence as we grow old, as we grow up and we become experienced. And if we strive and work and think and learn and uh, and love and suffer and so on, we might eventually acquire wisdom. But the curious thing is that innocence uh, cannot be wise, and wisdom certainly cannot be innocent. It strikes me that this uh, this all seems to stem out of a Gnostic cosmology. How familiar are you with those traditions? Well, that's uh, interesting as well. I was very interested in the Gnostics. I still am. But this differs from Gnosticism in one profoundly important way. The Gnostic uh, religion or belief system is based on the understanding that this world, the physical world, the material universe, is not the creation of a good God, but of an evil 
demiurge, uh, who created it as a kind of prison for the little sparks of divinity that had fallen from the original God, who was unknowable and far off and distant. Um, Gnosticism actually is a very uh, potent force uh, these days. You can even, in the X-Files, for example, is pure Gnosticism. What does Mulder say? The truth is out there, he says. Out there, not in here. In here is, is where the world is, and it's full of uh, evil conspiracies and uh, uh, plots and wickedness and so on, but the truth is somewhere else. Now, that's the Gnostic vision. My cosmology differs from that because I do not regard the physical universe as being um, a place of darkness and corruption and horror and wickedness and misery. C.S. Lewis does, incidentally, which is why at the end of the Narnia books he takes his characters out of the world altogether and puts them somewhere else. Uh, the Narnia cosmology is definitely Gnostic, but mine is not because I think that the, 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 the visible world that we can see is a place of extraordinary beauty and infinite delight, and if we could um, r realize its delights and its, uh, its joys fully, uh, we would want nothing else ever. As we start reading the first novel in this series, The Golden Compass, we notice very early on that the character of Lyra, the protagonist, has something by her side called a daemon? Uh, yeah, I pronounce it demon, but it demon. is spelled D-A-E with a ligature M-O-N. Uh, can you discuss what that is and where that image came from? Yes, the demon um, is a very uh, rich idea, as I was to discover in the course of the subsequent 1,300 pages. Um, everyone in Lyra as well has a demon, and it's, uh, it has the form of an animal. It's usually of the opposite sex, not, in, not invariably, but usually of the opposite sex. And it's your demon, and it accompanies you throughout life. The big uh, difference between children's demons and adults' demons is that the children's can change shape. They can, for one minute, they can be a, a rat and then a snake or a bat or a bird or whatever, depending on the child's changing mood and their changing perception of things, their fear, their anger, their whatever it might be. Um, this idea came to me in, in stages, you might say. When I first uh, thought of the demon, everybody's demon in that world changed shape, but I soon realized that that actually wasn't saying very much about the, the main theme of the, the book, so I, I realized it had to be the other way around, and that when we enter, or when we, uh, so to speak, go, go, go through the period of adolescence, of puberty, that is when our personality settles down. That's what it means. Our demon settles down into one form. Now, this enabled me to do a number of things. Uh, firstly, of course, largely to give a vivid and uh, pictorial image of the difference between childhood and adulthood, but also to, um, uh, to to show vividly what a character was like without going into long descriptions of how they behave and so on. If somebody's demon is a snake, you know that they're a sort of serpentine person. They're likely to be subtle. They're likely to be, you know, that, that sort of thing. It doesn't say anything about their moral qualities. You can be a good snake or a bad snake, but it, it indicates something about the nature of the, uh, of the personality. You're listening to an October 2000 interview with author Philip Pullman, whose trilogy titled His Dark Materials is currently an HBO series. His latest novel, The Secret Commonwealth, Volume 2 of a prequel series, The Book of Dust, was published in October 2019. How does the demon relate to the Jungian idea of anima or animus? Uh, no doubt that plays uh, quite a part in... in the, the way my mind was shaping it. Uh, th that's the, the opposite sex thing, partly. But also it's based on 
uh, of course, the old shamanistic idea of your spirit animal, your 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 totem, or whatever the phrase might be, the the animal which is your spirit guide, which goes with you, and so on. But the the reason I call it demon or daimon comes from, is is uh, d directly because of the Greek word daimon, which means in effect guardian angel, attendant spirit. That's all. You know, it, it functions like a conscience. Socrates talks about his daimon. A tremendous number of kinds of characters in the book, and uh, in an interview, you said that the ones that surprised you most were the Galavespians and the Armored Bear. Yes. And I'd like you to talk about how they came into existence, and particularly, what is a Galavespian? The Galavespians um, turned up in the third book, and uh, they took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting them at all. They're little people. I say little. They're about a hand span tall. And uh, they have poisonous spurs on their heels, and they're very touchy and very irritable and very, very proud. Now, their size means that they are um, able to act as spies. They can hide. They can watch what's going on. But in another way, they're very poor spies because the slightest, um, at the slightest uh, slight to their pride, they will spring out and make themselves known. So it's, uh, it was an interesting sort of dynamic going on within the characters themselves. They um, function in sort of narrative terms. They function because at that point in the story, Will and Lyra, need my protagonists, my boy and girl, needed um, an adult voice near them. But there were no other adult voices to hand. And it, it was also a very interesting um, pairing, the two adult Galavespians who were very small and the two young human children who were, by contrast, very big. So... That was um, uh, something which I enjoyed very much working out and uh, getting to grips with. I knew somehow from the beginning, when I first began The Golden Compass, I knew that I was going to have armored bears in the story, uh, polar bears, who um, have language and they have their own society, their own kingdom indeed, and they make armor, uh, which makes them, of course, even more formidable and more uh, terrifying warriors than they normally are. So I knew that Lyra was going to go to the north and meet an armored bear, and he was going to play some part in the story, and that's, that's really all I knew. But when I um, reached that point in the story, and Lyra first sees the bear and comes face to face with him, uh, and I sort of saw him in my mind's eye, lit by the late afternoon uh, sun, which turns his fur a sort of dirty, creamy color, and he's working to earn his keep in a uh, sledge depot, um, mending machinery, because he's very good with metal as all the armored bears. And, and when I heard his voice in my head, I knew that this was a, a, a major character and he had to have a big role. So um, uh, so he did, and uh, he comes back with... Um, uh, uh, he comes back in the third book, as I always knew he would. When you're writing a book with a tremendous cosmology that includes witches, ghosts, and uh, these strange diamond-shaped creatures called malefas, I don't know if I have the pronunciation That's right. right yeah. um, how do you try to maintain consistency of idea and consistency of different worlds? Uh, I don't. It's very simple. The consistency of the idea is no problem because the underlying the whole thing is a myth, uh, a story which you know I could summarize on, on about six or seven pages, and which which is the underlying sort of rock on which the whole thing is built. So that was consistent, and I knew it throughout. There was no problem with. Um, uh, unifying the idea of it. As for uh, the the different worlds, well, uh, part of the the background to this is the scientific notion of the the, the many worlds theory. Uh, I don't fully understand it because uh, there's too much mathematics involved. But apparently, uh, 
in order to account for certain uh, well-known phenomena in terms of quantum physics and so on, there has to be, or, or the simplest answer, putting it like that, the simplest answer is that there is a multiplicity of universes, all of which are um, nearby but unable to make contact. Well, that, that, of course, is a gift for a storyteller. Well, all you have to do is invent a way of getting from one to the other, and you've got a multiplicity of different worlds to hand. And I wasn't worried that they weren't going to be consistent with each other because our world isn't consistent. Uh, you know, in one place we have snow, in another place we have sunshine. It's it's <laughs> There's contradictions wherever you look, so that didn't worry me. Philip Pullman, um, a book of this magnitude, uh, obviously you have um, quite a background uh, in education, uh, in your own education. What kind of books did you read growing up? Um, what kind of books did you read as an adult? When I was a boy, um, I read pretty well everything. I particularly enjoyed um, comics, Superman and Batman comics. So this was in the days before they became all self-referential and postmodern and artistic. They were just sort of uh, naked, naive storytelling, and I loved it. I also loved the Sherlock Holmes stories. I loved um, uh, crime, uh, murder stories, horror stories, Edgar Allan Poe, all sorts of stuff. And I still do. Um, I read Tolkien when I was a teenager, and uh, this was in the 60s when everybody was reading Tolkien and going about pretending to be Gandalf or whatever, and uh, enjoyed that as well. So I, I, I really am omnivorous as a reader. It sounds as if you also have some kind of background uh, in religious studies. It's a subject that interests me profoundly, and I do read uh, a great deal about it. And um, in fact, my family background uh, might have some bearing on that. My grandfather, uh, in whose household I spent a large part of my childhood, was a, uh, a minister. He was a, a, a priest of the Church of England. So every Sunday I went to church. Um, we uh, we were brought up in those days with the old um, uh, version of the the, the, the the authorized version of the Bible, the King James Bible, and the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and the hymn book we had was Hymns Ancient and Modern, it was called. Uh, and that, that, there was a great sense of continuity there because those same words had been used in those same services for 300 years. And uh, so there was a sense of the past and a sense of all the, the, the worship and the interaction with the religious and the divine and the experience of that sort of thing um, that was around me in my, in my childhood. Uh, now, for its own reasons, the Church of England, anyway, has swept all that away. And we have new translations, we have new forms of service, we have hymns strummed to the sound of guitars, and so on. And all the all that connection with the past has just been wiped out in a generation as if it didn't matter. Well, I think it does matter, and I regret it's going. But it was around me when I was a boy. You mentioned, with regard to to C.S. Lewis, uh, that Narnia talks down to children. Philip Pullman, you don't talk down to children. No, I don't. Um, I think it's insulting and demeaning and entirely unnecessary. Uh, I trust my readers to be intelligent, and I trust them to follow the story. If there's anything they don't understand, um, either it is explained quite soon afterwards or it doesn't matter. What about the vocabulary? Did you find yourself under any constraints? None at all. I was writing really for an audience of one, which is me. Um, and I was writing the sort of book which I would enjoy reading. I suppose that's the only audience I really had in mind. Is that uh, is that what prompted you to start writing to begin with? That you wanted to read certain books and they weren't being written, so you might as well write them? 
Yes, that was partly it, but also partly the, also the joy of telling the story itself, of of um, organizing events and of having a sort of architectural sense of uh, where this thing is going in my head and uh, bringing it about. I remember when I was, um, I must have been about eight or nine, we were living in Australia then, and uh, I was sharing a bedroom with my younger brother, and every night I used to tell him a story. And I'd begin the story with no idea where the story was going to end. And I vividly remember uh, one or two occasions seeing something which I could bring into the story in a couple of minutes' time, which would tie it up neatly. And that was an enormous thrill when I managed to bring that off. I don't know whether he uh, remembers that, I, or even whether he was he was still awake when, you know, when I was telling him the story. But I remember that sense of seeing how something could work if I just brought this bigger bit over there and tied it up with that bit and then brought in the character from right back in the beginning and and it was all neat. and uh, uh, So I, I loved that sense of doing things. So you always knew you'd want to write then? Uh, well, I knew I wanted to tell stories in one form or another. Um, writing seemed to be a way of doing it where they gave you money. You also taught uh, English. Uh, you taught the Victorian novel. Yes, I taught uh, for quite a number of years. I taught uh, what would be junior high school, I suppose, kids of uh, 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, which was great fun, and I enjoyed that enormously. And then later on, I was had a spell uh, lecturing at a college of education, so I was training uh, undergraduates who, who were later going on to be teachers, and that was when I taught a course on the Victorian novel, yes. I do enjoy those great, confident, uh, mighty works, such as Bleak House and and Middle March. I love the the voice in which these stories are told, a lot of them. Uh, George Eliot's voice, for example, which is um, you know the, the omniscient third-person narrator who can both um, narrate a scene and simultaneously comment on the scene and take us from here to there and show us the whole of a society from top to bottom. Um, I enjoy that very much indeed. Um, we seem to have lost confidence in the third person as a way of telling the story. Um, nowadays, more and more fiction is told in the first person, and as often as not in the present tense as well, which I can't bear. Rowling, Lewis, Tolkien, they're all British. Is is there a reason for that, do you think? Th there's a tradition of this. You know, it goes back a long way. It goes back to Lewis Carroll. It goes back to uh, um, Kenneth Graham and the Wind of the Willows and so on. And when there is a tradition of writing in a particular way, and, uh, you know, there are models for for new writers and you, you're working in, in a sense which in a tradition which both enriches you and stimulates you to compete with it and so on. Um, we're just lucky that we have this this rich tradition of, uh, of, of that kind of writing, I suppose, in Britain. Do you think there's a difference between popular writing and literature? Yes, there is. And it has to do, I think, with the presence or the centrality of story. In um, in the Victorian times, story was not um, something to be ashamed of. It was not something that the great writers shied away from or felt that they had no business with. At the beginning of the 20th century, with uh, the growth of modernism and the, the, the self-consciousness about storytelling, which came in as a result of it, I mean, in people like Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and Gertrude Stein and so on, um, and E.M. Forster's famous comment, oh dear, yes, the novel tells a story. You know, he was embarrassed about it. It was something that was rather below his dignity to tell a story. And this has sort of bedeviled the, uh, uh, the literary novel, I think, for a long time. Uh, if you want story now, you have to go to genre fiction. You go to science fiction or fantasy or crime or, or, or whatever it is. And there you find story in full measure. 
Um, Isaac Bashevis Singer has a very interesting comment about story, which I think explains or goes some way to um, explaining our hunger for stories. Events, he says, are wiser than any commentary on them. In other words, if you just narrate something that happens and let people make their own interpretations and uh, let the events themselves sink into people's minds, you're giving them something far more than the self-referential, postmodern, tricksy, arty uh, way of playing with something and avoiding telling a story by doing it backwards or not punctuating it or doing it on loose sheets of paper that you have, all that sort of stuff. Um, well, I'm a storyteller. That's what I am, and that's where I'm proud to be. And uh, I bring to my storytelling such uh, literary art as I can muster, but th if that went by the board, too bad. The story is the thing. You've been listening to an October 2000 interview with author Philip Pullman about his fantasy series, His Dark Materials, adapted as a television series by HBO. Philip Pullman's latest novel, The Secret Commonwealth, the second volume of a prequel series titled The Book of Dust, was published in October 2019. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>